politics and partisanship often grind Congress to a standstill, and it's incredibly frustrating for someone who came to the U.S. Senate to get results for my state, North Dakota. But bipartisanship can happen if senators really want to find solutions. Earlier this month, I helped show that it's possible to bring folks together. With unique support from both coal companies and environmental groups, I reintroduced a bipartisan bill with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, one of the most vocal advocates on climate change, as well as Senators Shelley Moore Capito and John Barrasso, some of the most vocal advocates for coal. Um, we each may have different motivations for supporting this bill, but we stood together to introduce it because we want real results and we want action. Our bill would extend and expand a key tax credit to reduce coal's carbon emissions, making it cleaner, more competitive, um, and the folks around the political spectrum are coming to this bill and supporting it. Today on The Hot Dish, we'll be talking about why this bill could get done this year and how it would spur investment in innovative carbon capture technologies. U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is a Democrat from Rhode Island, and Senator Shelley Moore Capito is a Republican from West Virginia. Senator Whitehouse and I first introduced our bill to extend and expand uh, 45Q, this tax credit, last year, hoping to spur investment in carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology. Senator Capito, joining the Senate, quickly joined our bipartisan push. Um, I want to thank both of you for taking time, because time is the most precious resource a senator has. And I know you guys have been just terrific partners on this bill. And um, wanted, wanted, Sheldon, first off, I think a lot of people are surprised you would sign on this bill, because it's seen as a clean coal bill, you know, uh, and maybe as the as a leader of the progressive community that really has spent so much time and investment in talking about climate. Um, why are you on this bill? The uh, perils of uh, climate change driven by carbon dioxide emissions are looming very uh, ominously along Rhode Island's coasts and shores. We are seeing really dire predictions for what our coastline is going to look like by the end of the century. And so I'm a very strong believer in an all-in strategy. So working to fix the market failure that exists in this area so the people have a real incentive to invest in the technologies that can clean carbon dioxide out of emissions and, in fact, in some cases, even clear carbon dioxide out of the air to help reduce our planetary levels, um, that's a place where America should be at the forefront. And I think as uh, any experienced legislator knows, you've got to fight like hell for what you think is important. But at the same time, you also have to keep your eyes open for opportunities to move the ball forward. Uh, and here was a great opportunity to move the ball forward in a way that um, helps coal country because this kind of technology allows plants to continue to operate without their emissions burden and that helps uh, you know, Rhode Island because our shores are really at risk and we've got to find solutions. So. It wasn't that hard of a call. Plus, you and I have known each other for a long time, and it's always fun to work with you, Heidi. <laughs> Sheldon and I were uh, AGs together back in the day. Back when we were young, Sheldon always had gray hair, though, I must say. I don't think I've ever known you not with gray hair, Sheldon. It came on pretty early. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Shelly, yes. thank you so much for joining our merry band here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you I've been to your technology center. You're doing amazing work. Of course, we like to be a little competitive with our EERC mm -hmm. in North Dakota, but I know that West Virginia, a lot of people think that people in coal country are mired in the past. They aren't willing to look at technology. It's not true in West Virginia. I've seen it there, and I've seen it in both of their senators, but I'm really grateful for your participation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you see this bill affecting your state? Well, thank you, uh, Heidi, and it's great to be here with you and Sheldon to talk about how we are working to uh, take disparate interests and disparate um, sort of foundational uh, beliefs, maybe in some ways, and and trying to forge a uh, a solution to, uh, I think, a problem for us in coal country. Uh, coal is seen as um, a polluter, uh, but I see it uh, in my in my state, and in, and it's, I see the benefit of the jobs. Uh, I see the benefit of uh, a, a low cost energy produ production, and I want to see the life of coal. Um, we know it's not going to be what it was in the past, and, and we know that and and accept that. But we do see it as a baseload energy um, product provider. But if we don't get it cleaner, we're going to have much rockier. Uh, rockier roads in front of us. We're doing in, uh, innovation at the National Energy Technology Lab, as you mentioned, in Morgantown, where we're working on not just capture but also utilization. Uh, I think that um, I always, when I'm asked about how, how do you do this, I said we've got to weave a balance between the economy and the environment. I think this that's what this bill and 45Q is about. We know that the difficulties that carbon capture has had and, and this kind of technology are some of the cost issues. And so to spur that investment, I think that's why I was really attracted to this bill. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, because um, I've, I've, I've actually been on the board of directors of a large carbon uh, sequester a sequestration facility. I mean, we take a lot of CO2, compress it, send it north into Canada at Dakota Gas. And so when, when I say this can work, people say, no, it'll never work. I say, yeah, I know it has. And what drove that that investment was not concern for carbon. What drove it was producing a byproduct that you could sell and make and stabilize the economics of the facility. And so it's interesting when people say we can't do it commercially. We did this on purpose commercially in North Dakota. But I think I think, uh, Sheldon, you have been all over the country, to your great credit, looking at carbon sequestration, you know, looking at what does this look like and how can this work. You were up at SAS Power yep. um, just across the border in Estevan. <clears throat> I don't know if you've been to Petronova yet, either one of you. It's an amazing facility, brand new, incredible economics, on time, right on the money. And now you hear more and more about new technologies. So what makes you optimistic about this technology and how do you convince the naysayers that this can't be done. Well, there's so many ways that this can be made to work. Um, you know, there's a facility in Iceland where they're pumping it down into the ground and it reacts with the geology to turn into stone. Um, you can't have it much more fully captured than when it's turned <laughs> into stone. We have an exciting business in Rhode Island called uh, Bioprocess H2O. Uh, I've been out to Shenandoah, Iowa, to where they have a, a facility at the tail end of an ethanol plant. An ethanol plant makes huge amounts of carbon emissions. It also puts out wastewater and waste heat. They capture the waste heat to warm up the wastewater, and it makes a nice place for algae to grow, and they're designing new ways to have the algae grow more and more efficiently. And algae, like any other plant, 
eat carbon dioxide. So they're pulling about 15% of the CO2 out of that plant's waste stream and turning it into algae, which in turn they sell as a product into feed, into uh, cosmetics, into a whole variety of different uses. So we're at the very beginning, I think, of an algae agricultural revolution just with such an efficient uh, plant, but we've never really gotten uh, our arms around that technology before, and this is a way that uh, we can, again, take on some of the CO2 problem. So for everything from rock to algae, it's a pretty broad spectrum of possibility. Yeah, and if I can just add, I think you talked about pulling CO2 out of the air, um, basically then storing it. I mean, there's a, yep. and people think that that sounds like, you know, uh, science fiction. It's not science fiction because we have great institutions that are doing this, you know, born out of a little bit of a necessity because we know if we're going to continue to produce uh, uh, electricity with coal, we're going to need to be responsive on this. So time and technology is on our side and we need a little bit of incentive. And so, Shelley, when you look at this, what do you, how do you see West Virginia taking advantage of 45Q? Well, I think obviously we have some of the most abundant coal resources in the in the country. Uh, we're a traditional um, mining state. Uh, we also have quite a bit of natural gas, and so this is not just coal. Uh, mm-hmm. It's natural gas as well because natural gas, when burned, emits carbon dioxide as well. And we're also from a very, like you are, uh, a very rural state that – enjoys a great uh, environmental uh, life of trout fishing and hunting and camping and and outdoor recreation. So we want to preserve that, and not just because we love it, but, you know, it's an economical, economic uh, part of our state as well. So I, I, we see it, this, I think, and things like this with the technologies, uh, as job creators, job preservers, but also uh, as the... Uh, one way to move forward. And I think it would be good to point out to folks that are listening, the people that have, were there in support of this bill when mm-hmm. we rolled it out, much to your credit, was such an incredibly diverse um, constituents. And all, all the way from labor unions to environmental groups to coal producers, that's rare. <laughs> and uh, it's much appreciated. Well, I, you know, I think I think that it it goes to to um, uh, to respond to the argument. You can't get anything done. You folks just sit around and fight. You go into your corners, and you know you aren't willing to be think creatively. And you know what, Sheldon? I don't mean this any negative way, but I said, you know, I think my claim to fame since I've been here is Sheldon Whitehouse and Mitch McConnell were on my bill. I was, you know, it's, it's, it's. There it's, haven't been many that share that characteristic. I'll tell you that. You know, and Shelley's helped um, bridge that with, um, with the folks in the Republican caucus and conference as well. And I, and, and I think we should that, say a kind word about our uh, chairman, John Barrasso, yeah. too, who showed up at the right. announcement and who is uh, about as uh, much of a coal hawk as. Uh, <laughs> Senator yes. Capito is. Yes. I think um, we'd have to. But also, you know, understands that this is a big opportunity that we have to take advantage of, irrespective of our separate beliefs. Right. And I know. I, I think what's great here is we have right now, I think, close to 25, if not 25 co-sponsors. We're working to try and get 30, 35. We're a little, we're a little, you know, because people say, well, how real is this? Can you get it across the finish line? We've come close. I mean, Shelley knows this. We've come close about three times um, uh, year end and, and looking at kind of deals that get pulled together 
together. Um, given the diversity of the interest of this, it's a it's an easy lift. But um, we can't we can't quite get it there. Now we're in this. Um, are, is this going to be part of tax reform, or how will this fit in with tax reform? So that that gives us a little bit of um, headwind. But I don't think enough. If we get enough critical mass, I think we can get this done. And I think what's going to be fascinating is it's an opportunity to talk about the new technologies that are emerging that we see all the time. You see in the lab, but you also see being commercialized. Um, earlier in, 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 in this podcast, um, Ulio Friedman, um, who I told Sheldon, you have to get to know my friend Ulio, who is like, has but forgotten I more. I know. And you're, you, you, get, you get that smile when you talk about him, too, because it's like drinking from a fire hose. If you want to know anything about carbon capture, uh, and sequestration, and utilization, he knows it. And he's in, uh, he's in uh, Shanghai right now um, working on a project. And, and so um, what, what, what we know is that the technologies are going to be very diverse. But I want to also make this point, and I think Sheldon makes it so well. It's not just about behind a coal-fired plant. It's behind natural gas. Mm -hmm. um, it is behind steel plants, ethanol plants. We, we're going to see that might be the first utilization of this in North Dakota is, is ethanol plants. Um, I, I talked to the people down at Petronova. They were telling me about new technologies with filters so you don't have the, the chemical reaction. You can just filter out the CO2, um, saving costs in, in capture um, to begin with. And then just the, just the kind of creative, um, we can do it kind of um, attitude that we have in this country that we can be the leaders. And if we're the leaders in technology, we're, the, we're, we're winning economically. And, and and I just think that this is a way to win economically and be leaders in technology. And uh, we'll power that up even more the more we can make there be a business case mm -hmm. for um, reducing carbon or extracting uh, carbon from emissions. And, um, you know, obviously I think that putting a price on carbon emissions is the right way to do that because that moves the whole economy uh, but we've done here is in this focused uh, area, put a price on it in the form of um, a tax credit mm -hmm. uh, so that people can make that all-important business decision with some certainty about where their revenues might come from. In a, in a market economy, if you can't forecast any revenues coming in for your effort, you're not likely to get very far with your effort. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are lots of opportunities, even beyond this bill, in terms of trying to generate the the market dynamic that supports all of that initiative, supporting um, safely operated nuclear plants as well, which mm -hmm. have no business being closed for the sole reason that they're not compensated for the carbon-free nature of their power. Yeah. That's not a sensible reason for that. I, 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 I'm all of the above, and even though we don't do that in North Dakota, I think that it's a critical and, and important piece of the energy opportunity that we have in this country. And, you know, Shelley, one of the things that we like to brag about and uh, that we've brought in the coal industry is reliable, redundant, mm -hmm. affordable electricity. And speaking this morning with Ulio, he talked a lot about, you know, guess what? You know, we're, we're going to be the innovators because we're going to be that energy country that, that does it right, but also does it in a way that makes energy um, affordable for, for industry, affordable for our, our communities. Well, I think another, that kind of dovetails with what Sheldon was just saying about making the economic case for this. I think another 
faction of the economic case is the development of the technologies and the innovation, because those will become saleable products for countries around the world. If we are at the cutting edge of figuring out the utilization, uh, sequestration, or the value of um, reusing carbon dioxide and how the best way to deal with it, that is, it, whether it's done at, at the energy labs or at our universities, that is going to be something that's going to be commercialized, that's going to be uh, have tremendous value and really cuts across all aspects of the world economy, not just energy production, but military, um, economic development around uh, around poor nations to be able to mm-hmm. move forward. So I see a lot of um, pluses on that, not just at, at, the, at the power generation site, but all throughout the economy, and particularly in the research and innovation and education sectors, where there's a whole future here. Uh, I, I think one of the things people might say is, why make this investment? We, we, we're, we've now backed away from uh, the Paris Climate Accord. We aren't, we aren't setting these broad goals. My argument is that that ignores what's happening in the commercial world. I mean, you look at ExxonMobil. They have they have a carbon strategy. You look at um, most of most of American business now is is moving in this direction of energy efficiency, carbon neutrality, and 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 it's not just American businesses; it's international businesses. And if we're going to compete, we've got to demonstrate that we're meeting the mark. And so it's not even about government regulation anymore; it's become an imperative commercial um, requirement to do business. And I think you know, Sheldon, maybe you want to comment on what you see kind of in the Fortune 500 world versus what you see in the governmental world. Well, I think um, if you look at the decision to get out of the Paris Agreement, this was not an administration that was going to be any good at following the Paris Agreement anyway. They were going to stink at that. So um, I don't know that them getting out or them staying in and stinking at it makes a really big difference. But what it has done is it has really put a lot of wind into the sails of all of the mayors around the country who've organized hundreds of them to make their cities leaders on this front, uh, many governors, Republican and Democrat governors, who are working very hard to make their states leaders on this front, and virtually all of the American corporate leadership. If you look at the companies that signed the advertisement asking the president to stay in Paris, it's a pretty impressive group of American corporations, if you look at the group that signed the original uh, Act on uh, Climate Paris Pledge, it's, it's enormous. It's hard to think of a company that's not in it. And these are companies that are not only cleaning up their act within their own corporate precincts, but in many cases, they're actually requiring their supply chains to conform in the same way that they don't want child labor in their supply chains. They don't want a lot of dirty energy in their supply chains. So... They are starting to make a, a big difference, and the last step for them would be to come to Washington and help make the difference here. <laughs> well, I, I definitely think that, that we're ready to produce for the market. 
-hmm. And we're proud of what we do. We produce electricity from coal. We think we are and can be. We've done enormous work in cleaning up that energy source, whether it's scrubbers. I mean, I can show you dollar and dollar of investment in environmental controls. Now, we can get there. Mm -hmm. And we can get there with the right kind of investment. And we can be, you know, that clean energy that's going to respond to marketplace demands, if there, even if there's not a governmental demand. And, and I think that's the thing I want people to understand is people say, well, why do this if there's no governmental demand? Well, this is, this is that demand for clean energy is being driven by consumers, whether it's in-state consumers, public utility commissions, large population states setting clean energy standards, or whether it is corporate America looking at their supply chain. And one so. thing we can certainly all be for here is having American products go overseas to Africa, to India, yeah. to China, to help uh, clean up emissions wherever they're being emitted. And uh, America needs to compete in that industry. America has the ability to innovate and lead in that industry. And I think that's one of those areas where uh, all senators pull together. Mm-hmm. Shelley? Well, I mean, I just think word. that, yeah, thank you. I mean, I think... Um, I'm learning more every day about the directions that we're going. I, have to, I need to make some of those visits like you have, uh, Heidi. But I, but for me, uh, it's representing West Virginia, it's a jobs issue. It's uh, it's it's not only on the on the coal side, but on the on the environmental side, the research side, the technology side. Um, we know, and I, I said this at the press conference, and it may sound a little I don't know pie in the sky, but. There are still uses and uh, reuses of carbon dioxide that haven't even been thought of yet. That's right. And so I choose to think that that the value is still out there, uh, aside from the value of a solid uh, energy source that's uh, that that's secure and tried and true. And in the days like we're having today, when it's ninety nine degrees, if we w- if we didn't have coal pumping some of those air conditioners around the country. It, it, it could be life-threatening. Yeah, so, life-threatening. Uh, but we want to be smart about it, and trying to figure out a way to pull all of us in the same room together uh, is is really a, a good thing. And you're invited to come up to North Dakota to and visit Dakota Gas. And just across the border, up there in Tioga, um, is uh, is Boundary Dam. And that's where SAS Power is doing their amazing work as well. And and we could take you over to the oil fields and show you some secondary or Uses. tertiary recovery um, and and it's it's an amazing industry and it's innovative and it's happening and and the point that I want to make is we are not mired in the past we're ready to pursue an opportunity this will be a a huge um, uh, 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 jump start for um, continuing this right. technology and we want to get this done sounds good thanks thanks friends sounds good thanks bye bye. I will tell you, I've got a, a, a bio intro that I'm going to read here, but no one knows more about this than a great friend of mine and one of the smartest people I've had an, uh, the honor to meet as a senator in Washington, D.C., and that is a scientist by the name of Ulio Friedman. 
Um, Ulio recently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Clean Coal at the U.S. Department of Energy. Now he's back at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories in California, where he serves as the lab's chief expert in energy technologies and systems. I want to thank Ulio, who's with us, calling in all the way from Beijing, um, or from Shanghai. Sorry, Ulio. I want to chat about carbon capture, utilization, and storage technologies. And, you know, Ulio, you know that I served on the board of directors of something called Dakota Gas. What we've done over the years is compress CO2 and sent it north into Canada for enhanced oil recovery. And I brag about that a lot because when people say, well, there's no such thing as clean coal technologies. It doesn't exist. It's a figment of the imagination. I I, I go about as far as my technical expertise will take me, which, you know, is maybe better than some, but certainly not to your capability. And then I say, you need to talk to this guy. His name is Julio Friedman. He'll make you a believer. And so I am so grateful you're willing to take time today to join us and to talk about what you know about these technologies. Senator, it's a terrific honor. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Great. And and so um, as you, you know, you don't just look at what's happening in our country, but you travel the whole world. And maybe you can give us a rundown on some of the true innovations that you've seen across the country that would, would surprise people and maybe convince them that we can do um, we can do coal and we can do it in a way that uh, achieves a, a lot of neutrality as it relates to CO2 emissions. Well, thank you. Uh, indeed, the innovation is coming fast and in many dimensions. Uh, for one thing, uh, a common theme I hear from people, uh, from the naysayers who have doubts, is that this technology is simply too expensive. And one of the things I've seen is over the past 10 years, there's been a dramatic global decrease in cost. Uh, The costs have come down about 50% in real terms. And in fact, the cost of carbon capture and storage uh, today on a levelized cost basis is in fact less than a lot of other clean energy technologies. Even retrofitting an existing plant, uh, you would have a a levelized cost basis uh, at cheaper electricity than, say, uh, most rooftop solar, most offshore wind, uh, a lot of new-build nuclear, concentrating solar power, a lot of other technologies that people understand and like, uh, but in fact, uh, uh, fossil power with CCS already is cheaper than that with today's technology. Uh, I'm also seeing innovations in the business model. A very important project in Texas, the Petronova project, came in on time and on budget. But the thing that made that project fly was an innovative business model. They actually integrated the power plant, the capture plant, the CO2 pipeline, and the oil field into one vertically integrated company. And that actually made the revenues work. So it went from being affordable to actually being profitable for that company. We're also seeing innovations in how this technology is applied. Uh, It's being applied not just in the power sector, but it's being applied uh, in the industrial sector. Like the Great Plains plant in your state, Senator, we're seeing now 16 plants around the world that are operational. 14 of them are actually not power projects, they're industrial projects. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing innovations like uh, on steel plants in the Middle East, uh, in refineries around the world, and even a coal to chemicals plant here in China, which is going to be their first large project. You know, it's uh, and in fact, we're seeing even more innovations. Uh, everything from 
trying to capture CO2 on board vehicles in Saudi Arabia to, in fact, converting CO2 into fuels and chemicals. And there's projects and groups all around the world working on this technology. So it's actually a, a pretty impressive array of options that are out there. And it's because people have been working so hard because they're so committed to seeing this fly. Well, and, and the one point that I want to make and we try and make here is a, there's a lot of, especially in the environmental community, a lot of concern about meeting the, the Paris targets um, for for countries all over the world. And, you know, my read of this, and correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, is that we can't get there without carbon capture, utilization, and storage. We can't get there without these technologies. And so for people on the other side saying you're just throwing good money to bad, that's baked in and built into those numbers and so you got to be with us on helping develop these technologies that are deployable uh, you know in natural gas they're deployable in cement plants they're deployable in ethanol plants and in you know like you said you know many of the the uh, technologies now are being utilized not behind coal-fired power but behind other industrial facilities so you know talk a little bit about what carbon capture and sequestration and utilization means for uh, achieving a, a global target on carbon Right. So if you believe in climate science, you got to believe in climate math. <laughs> and the climate math is pretty straightforward. Uh, it is essentially impossible not only to meet our Paris targets, but to meet any stabilization scenario at two degrees. Uh, one of the things that is true is this has been worked on for many, many years. Uh, and in it's the strongest reference I can get you is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And according to their assessment, uh, they looked at all of their economic models. Seven of the 11 models couldn't converge. They actually couldn't deliver a climate solution without CCS. And part of the reason why is because there's coal plants all over the world and gas plants all over the world and cement and steel plants and refineries all over the world. And there really is no way to deal with those existing facilities other than carbon capture and storage. Uh, the other four scenarios the IPCC ran said you could do it without CCS, but it would cost more than twice as much. It would cost about 140% more money because, in fact, you have to destroy capital assets and replace them with other expensive capital assets. I said, uh, so it, the math is yeah. very compelling. Yeah, the I, other thing this points to is the opportunity there is in terms of an export technology for the United States. We can make CCS work here in the United States, and we are still global leaders in this technology, then other countries will want to adopt and purchase our technology uh, around the world to solve their own issues. There's well, an opportunity for U.S. industry, for manufacturing, and U.S. competitiveness by the development and sustainment of this technology set. Yeah, and, and, and I want to make this point because a number of the coal companies that we've been working with from Cloud Peak to um, Arch and Peabody, they all encourage the president not to back out of the, the um, Paris Accord because they believe that it will slow down the incentive to develop these technologies, which they see as essential to make them competitive in a global economy as, as technology leaders, but also um, making sure that we continue to uh, uh, have a placeholder and have an opportunity for the coal industry to, to grow. And so, I mean, I think, I think that 
that it seems counterintuitive sometimes, Julio, for people to think, you know, to take these steps with us. But once you do, you kind of get in the category of true believer on this technology. And we know that production tax credits and, and you know, and I know, you know, it's not your job to comment on on the economics of this um, from a from an incentive standpoint, but it certainly is good for our energy future to make an investment in these technologies as we move forward. And it's also good for climate. And so when we talk about energy dominance, which, you know, I'm all for it, let's be dominant, but let's do it um, in a way that we're developing technologies that are deployable and usable and valued across the globe. Indeed. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, one of the things that's absolutely true is that, uh, what's the right way to say this? Um, we maintain our dominance in medicine. We maintain our dominance in uh, aerospace and all these other arenas by investing in innovation. And the government puts investment in all along the innovation chain. Um, and it's, if we want that same kind of result, we need to make substantial support to get the outcome that we want. In the context of uh, other clean energy, like solar and wind, when they first were trying to enter the market, there was a gap in their financing. And they weren't able to get financed because the cost and the certainty of the project were beyond what people were willing to pay. That's where innovations like renewable portfolio standards or investment tax credits or production tax credits, these things close the financial gap for those technologies. So while I am, cannot recommend a specific policy, it is important to close that financing gap for CCS. As I said earlier in the presentation today, uh, CCS is affordable when compared to other clean energy technologies, but today it is not financeable. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be some action that closes that financing gap if we want to deploy these things and get the environmental and economic and commercial benefit that CCS has for clean fossil energy. One of one of the issues that Senator Whitehouse has raised because he gets a little when I just talk, talk about carbon capture and sequestration, he's like, don't forget utilization because there's some pretty amazing technologies that are going on in utilization. Can you just explain to the folks who are listening what the difference is behind beyond carbon capture and how that's different than utilization? Right. So it is reasonable for people to think, hey. We've got all the CO2. Is there something we can do with it? And the first answer is not only yes, but we have been doing things with it. For over 40 years, we've been injecting CO2 into uh, dying oil fields in order to keep them running and to get extra oil out. Today, about 3% of U.S. oil production comes from enhanced oil recovery from CO2 injection. And in fact, we put about 60 million tons of CO2 underground every year. About a quarter of that is from man-made sources. Beyond enhanced oil recovery, one can think of other things to do with CO2. Uh, One of my favorites is actually to turn it into rock aggregates that can be used in construction or to turn it into cement. And these are very long-lived materials that, in fact, have value in the market today. Uh, Thinking farther into the future, there are many groups out there who have shown that you can turn CO2 into chemical feedstocks like methanol or ethylene that you can turn CO2 into fuels like natural gas or methanol or diesel fuel, and that you can turn 
uh, all of these, and even into other long-lived products like carbon fibers uh, or graphene. So in fact, the world itself that we live in is built out of carbon. Uh, we live in a carbon-built environment. And so it is uh, reasonable to ask ourselves, hey, is there something we can do to turn that CO2 into a valuable product that we can use in our everyday lives? Everything from concrete to plastics to fuels potentially could be made out of CO2. You know, and I always love telling this story because um, Dakota Gas, um, which which uh, has done this for many years, um, did it not because they said, oh, well, there's going to be a great tax credit for this. They did it because they needed a marketable byproduct. They needed to have another income and revenue stream, and that's what um, CO2 has been for Dakota Gas as it's used in enhanced oil recovery. And so um, I think I think people may have just heard what you said and said, oh, you know, that's just years or light years away. But, but I'm, I'm telling you, never bet against the innovation and the technological uh, thought process and implementation of Americans. Because we'll figure it out. But we just need the time to build these technologies. We need to understand that they have value for all of us. But but I want to just, you know, maybe just turn for a minute on the value that they have for the coal industry. When you were um, recruited for your role in the previous administration by Secretary Moniz, um, uh, it was based in part on an MIT study that you worked on together um, called The Future of Coal. Can you just tell folks a little bit about what you two great scientists uh, came up with and, and uh, how that, that document helped inform the work and continues to inform the work that you're doing today. Well, thank you. Uh, this study was one of many that was convened by not only uh, Secretary Moniz, while he was uh, Professor Moniz at MIT, but also by John Deutsch, another great and accomplished civil servant. And they were trying to understand how innovation and technology and policy and climate constraints and all these things would affect energy systems. The second report they wrote was the future of coal, and I felt very privileged to be asked to join them in thinking about what the opportunities were. A key conclusion of that study was very straightforward. They said in a carbon-constrained world, if carbon capture and storage works, then there's an opportunity for the coal industry to grow and thrive. In contrast, if carbon capture and storage doesn't work, then you will see a dramatic decline in coal as a viable fuel. And they predicted that by 2030, the coal industry would be only 25% of what it was back when we wrote that report in 2006. And it seems like we're on track that way. Unless CCS gets deployed, there is very little way for coal to enter the market now. And that's not about regulation. That's about finance. Wall Street's voting with its feet on this one. They see carbon risk associated with new coal plants. They see carbon risk associated with existing coal plants. If you can manage that carbon dioxide and keep it from the air, then those assets have a future in a carbon-constrained world. But if those are not paired with carbon management, then any investor out there sees risk associated with that project and simply won't put their money into it. And uh, it's not a happy prediction to the coal industry, but so far the future coal study has been spot on in terms of both the speed and magnitude of decline uh, for coal as part of the U.S. power sector. 
Yeah, powered a little bit by this amazing uh, growth in the supply of natural gas and, uh, you know, kind of consistent and prolonged low natural gas prices, which have allowed uh, a lot of our generation industry to, to convert to natural gas. And so um, we're, 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 you know, I just tell people, you know, I, I, I believe in all of the above. And if we're presented with a challenge, we can meet that challenge given enough time and given enough shared investment. And, you know, to me, uh, you know, one of the one of the great lines, the Ulio Friedman lines that I, I give is they say, well, why do you talk? He goes, well, if you're concerned about carbon, you got to go where carbon is. And um, across the globe, we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, as, as as the United States, because we're we're the benefactor of low natural gas prices, as we see a decline um, of of the utilization of coal for generation of electricity, that's not true in other countries. And so um, this is a real opportunity for us to continue our position as innovators. It's a real opportunity for us to collaborate and to work together um, in in common purpose. And and I just I, I just get excited when I think about it. I get excited when I think about all the technologies that are happening across the globe and. And uh, you've been a big part of that, um, you know, educating people in, in the industry and, and here, uh, Ulio in Washington, D.C., but also continuing to stay current in what's happening across the globe. So if there's one, like, holy cow moment that you've had in the last year as it relates to um, uh, carbon uh, utilization and sequestration, what would that holy cow moment be? Oh, that's a tough question. Nothing shocks um, you because you just expect it to be. For me, <laughs> was when I realized that we are no longer in a period of energy scarcity. Instead, we are in a period of energy abundance. You had mentioned earlier the abundant, low-cost natural gas we have now around the United States, and we're seeing more of around the world. We also are in a time of abundant deployment of wind and solar energy, and those electricity sources make possible a whole bunch of things that we hadn't thought possible before. So I'm looking out into the future and I'm saying, you know what? Every year we can buy more energy for $1. Mm-hmm. People may complain, and rightly so, about the specific price they pay uh, for electric power or at the pump. But in fact, every year we can buy more energy for a dollar, not less. And at some point, we can harness all that energy We can harness that energy to pull CO2 from the air and oceans. We can harness that energy to convert that CO2 into useful products. And that energy abundance of clean energy of all kinds will, in fact, create a new carbon economy, Hmm. one in which carbon that is captured and stored, carbon that is pulled from power plants and refineries, carbon that is pulled from the air and ocean is going to be the new feedstock for systems and energy and industries that we have only begun to imagine. And it's based on abundant, clean energy. And the abundant fossil energy that we have won't be clean until we manage the carbon with it. Well, that, I think I think that's uh, the point at which I let you go to bed <laughs> and get some rest and invite you anytime to come back to North Dakota. You wowed the audience at Basin Electric's annual meeting. You continue to inspire me to continue my work 
Um, and, and, you know, it's so rare that we actually hear an optimistic message. And when we think about, you know, what we want to do in this country, um, in the United States to continue to be uh, leaders in advanced manufacturing, to continue to be innovators. This is part of the message. This is part of the investment. And this is, you know, to your point, um, uh, part of the opportunity uh, to lower energy costs and improve our our, um, our our policies overall, but grow our economy in ways that were really unthinkable in a in a low cost energy environment. So, thanks so much, Julio. Um, get some rest. Thank you so much, Senator. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for the great work that you do and that you do, not only for your state but for our country and across the aisle. Uh, we'll talk to you later. 